0: Welcome back to Politically Speaking, Hollywood Magazine's weekly podcast, where you'll get the real rundown of what's going on in Scottish politics. We have the interviews, the gossip, and sometimes the laughs. So please join us. And remember, when anyone tells you they're not interested in politics, you tell them you know a podcast that can help them out with that. And you can also rate or review us on Apple Podcasts. So enjoy.
1: Hello and welcome to Politically Speaking, Holyrood Magazine's weekly look at the world of Scottish politics. I'm Chris Marshall, Deputy Editor of Holyrood. And with just a week to go before the election, Holyrood Magazine has had exclusive access to polling by Lord Ashcroft. The polling shows a narrow majority of Scottish voters now support staying in the UK. Ashcroft says the result of a second referendum, however, remains on a knife edge amounting to what he calls a statistical dead heat. According to the data, voters see the NHS and the pandemic bigger issues at the moment but many will choose who to vote for based on that party's position on independence in this edition of the podcast we'll bring you an interview with lawyer and human rights campaigner amor anwar but first i'm joined by journalist louise wilson to discuss the latest from the campaign trail louise ashcroft's polling is uh, is fairly extensive what, what, what do you think the main takeaways are um
2: well as you just as you just said there um support for independence remains roughly neck and neck Um, But I thought the most interesting bit was actually people saying that that wasn't um, a top issue for them. The top issues are instead the NHS, COVID and the economy, which are obviously all closely linked. Um, But it's interesting that independence didn't become the top factor for them, despite then when asking voters later, it does become what's influencing their decision. Um, I thought that was perhaps not that surprising when it comes to the SNP and Conservative voters. Um, you know, they've both set out their stalls. The Conservatives in particular um, are really, really gunning against having a referendum. But I thought maybe it was a bit more surprising just for the other parties, the Greens, Labour and the Lib Dems, who have perhaps not been um, as forthright as the other two parties have been. Mm-hmm.
1: So, I mean, it, it suggests that, um, that you know, in the, the early days of the new parliament, we might have, um, you know, a general consensus on on focusing on on the pandemic in the nhs but ultimately it's it's independence and the issue of a second referendum which which is going to dominate over the course of that parliament
2: yeah absolutely i mean i think for a lot of voters although independence might not be the main issue it becomes intertwined with all um that other stuff you know if you're talking about to rebuild Scotland do you do that as part of the UK or as an independent nation and I think that's also why the SNP have been saying that yes they would like to hold a referendum sooner after the initial recovery um, but before everything sort of starts to get back to business as usual. Mm -hmm.
1: And there was a slightly more uh, left field question about which animal um, voters see various party leaders as Louise.
2: Yeah, I really enjoyed this one. Um so they were just looking at it um just in terms of what people think of party leaders and obviously the animal question is quite a good indicator of uh, of what that what people see the leaders as. Um so Sturgeon um came out as as a lion or a panther, or for one a wise owl. Um you know, marking that her leadership during COVID has been actually quite well received. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you compare that with someone like Boris Johnson, who came out as a baboon or a mosquito because he seemed harmless, but was probably carrying malaria.
1: Oh, God, that's particularly brutal.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Um, And then perhaps most brutal of all was maybe the views of Alex Salmond, who, um, having launched the ALPA Party, um, was it last month? Salmon got described as a warthog, a toad, or a snake, which is not particularly flattering.
1: Oh, indeed. And, and speaking of uh, brutal, um, we've had analysis from the uh, Institute for Fiscal Studies um, of the various um, manifestos of the three main parties. Um, wh- what did that analysis of the, the IFS say?
0: uh
2: brutal is absolutely the right word um so the top line i think was that the manifestos um all three of the snp labor and conservatives was um displayed a disconnect from the fiscal reality of the next scottish government um yeah you can't really get much more brutal than that really um it's essentially reflecting on all the commitments that the parties have made over recent weeks which you know in an election campaign not that unusual Um, But then, of course, we're coming at this off the back of um, an economic crisis caused by COVID, plus the extra pressures on the NHS. Um, So there's a real worry from the IFS about how to actually pay for a lot of the commitments. Um, And in the end, they said that whilst more cash is likely to come from the UK government, is probably not going to be enough to cover the full extent of the pledges and therefore taxing increases or cuts to other services is likely to be needed.
1: Yeah, and uh, we got a bit more detail as well last week, uh, Louise, about um, when we might uh, or what the election count itself might actually look like. I mean, we, we know that because, uh, because of the pandemic, things are going to be slightly different this year. So um, what did we find out about about the results and when, when we should expect the, the final result?
2: Um, so, as you know, um, unusually, we'll actually all get a good night's sleep on the Thursday um, it's because the count won't start until the Friday morning. Um, a lot of the places won't start counting until 9 a.m. The ballot boxes will be sealed in those venues overnight. Um, we're expecting about 44 of the 73 constituency seats uh, on the Friday um, and the remaining 29 will be announced when counts continue on the Saturday Um, and then list seats will be announced then as well. As you'll know, list seats can't be counted until all the constituency um, seats have been announced. Um, So essentially what that means is that we won't really get an idea of what the next parliament will look like until probably the afternoon of Saturday the 8th of May.
1: Okay, so we'll all get to bed a bit earlier than normal, but um, we might be waiting a little bit longer to find out who forms the next government.
2: Yeah, I mean, for those people that really enjoyed the um, ongoing America count, Um, for the presidential election in November, they'll have some real fun.
1: Great. Okay, well, thanks very much, Louise. Um, And now for our interview uh, with Amar Anwar, who spoke to Holyrood editor Mandy Rhodes.
0: Amar, Last week or a couple of weeks ago, it kind of felt like things had coalesced, if you like. We got the, It was the 28th anniversary of the death of Stephen Lawrence and also the conviction um, of the murder for the killing of George Floyd. What did those two things, if you like, coming together mean to you?
3: I, th- I think it was... Um, I mean, the, the verdict of George Floyd meant a great deal because I think family all around the world... Um, whose loved ones had lost their lives to police violence, who lost lives to racial violence, um, individuals who'd campaigned. I mean, for me, it feels like I've campaigned my whole life. So, I mean, I could think 30 years, three decades, been fighting racism. I was glued to the TV screen and it was a feeling of fear when you were watching it. I was telling people around me that we're not going to win. And I use the words, we're not going to win. Um, because we got so used to watching racist police officers walk away, um, never seeing justice, no matter how much evidence there was. Um, and it was, in the first moment, it was shock and actually felt tears because I was overwhelmed by that feeling of joy, that feeling of relief. It was relief more so. And it reminded me almost of the feeling of when. In 2016, I was in the high court in Glasgow, and we'd fought nearly 18 years to get justice for the family of Sergei Singh Choker, who, in, who was a victim of a racist murder. And that feeling of emotion, the, the, the relief, overwhelming feeling of relief, because people asked me at the time, "Is are, are you and the family going to be celebrating? And I said, there is no celebration. It's just quiet relief. And satisfaction that justice had been done. But I also thought it was a very important moment for those people who were new to the politics of anti-racism, who were the younger generation, who had stood up with Black Lives Matter, and that overwhelming blow that was struck for freedom, for justice, it meant a great deal because for somebody, an old-timer like me, um, you know, you get used to the defeats, and people always ask me, how would you keep going? And saying, well, for every 100 defeats, there is that one victory. And that one victory then powers you on to carry on and on and on. And I thought it, was, it would have been a huge blow to the movement for the younger generation who've revitalized that movement um, if we had lost. But I also was very conscious. I mean, just the other day, I did um, a, a podcast with Imran Khan, an old friend of mine who was a lawyer for the Stephen Lawrence family. And we did it on the Stephen Lawrence day, both myself and Imran having a sort of chat, an honest chat between two friends of how we both felt. And uh, the words that struck me was Imran's words was that he feels despondent because it almost feels like the clock has been turned back. You look at the Sewell report and you look at all these events that happened, you know, George Floyd in the United States is a huge movement. You know, you have the president speaking about structural racism, about inquiries and inquiry to the police. Yeah, in this country, the UK government response is racism doesn't exist. I mean, I said quite flippantly after the Sewell report, "Why don't they just abolish the term racism, and then they can scream from the rooftops we don't have racism anymore?" But but for many of us, I mean, what I said to Imran and both of us agreed was that that for us it's business as usual. We will carry on. We will be, keep fighting. And and when you look to the United States, it, they I, I tempered. When I spoke to quite a few young people who were going, "This is great," I said, "It's not business as usual. It's not. It's not like you can just simply move on." Because I said, just down the road, another black person was shot dead. You know, you had Dwayne Wright just a couple of miles away from the courthouse. Um, you had that young girl who was shot dead, and you thought it was almost like a message was being sent out. You know, from the status quo, from a racist police system saying we will just carry on and that that case was one but the one case is always very important because it galvanizes a movement it makes people think that you that you can win and you can carry on and it gives hope and, and ultimately at the end of when you strip all of that away I know this because when I look for instance at the Sheku Bayo family who's you know in, in a week's time it will be the sixth anniversary of the death of Sheku Bayo in police custody and I spoke to Cardi, um Sheku's sister just after the George Floyd verdict. And she was crying, and, but she, was, she said she was relieved and she was happy. But there was almost like this feeling of, well, what about my brother? Because for, for her, she says that she doesn't believe she'll ever see justice. And what we should remember is in this country, since 1969, for every person that has died in police custody, not a single police officer has been convicted of murder, of culpable homicide of manslaughter and that so when we look across the united states and somehow we think we're better we're actually better well actually the statistics are worse because as caddy said at the time at least four police officers would stand trial within the space of four weeks of campaigning four police officers were to stand trial within the space of four years of campaigning no police officers were to stand trial in this country for, for the death of shikibai
0: and I think that's worth uh, going over, obviously, Amma, because the George Floyd killing was clearly a tipping point, but for you it must have felt very strange, being involved with the Sheku case. Where was the outrage?
3: <laughs> well, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's it's been an uphill struggle. Um, and as in the George Floyd case, you know, we are used to the fact that when black men die in police custody, the system goes into overdrive. There is the misinformation. In John Charles de Menzies, for instance, case when he died in 2005 at the Stockwell tube station, you know, the information that was given out immediately was that he jumped over, you know, the the ticket barriers. Seven years later, you find that it didn't. In the case of Shaky bio. the information that went out straight away was that a policewoman had been stabbed. Then the information went out that he was you know he he had a knife and a police officer was attacked so almost instantly it was connected he had a knife the police arrived he had a knife and the police officer attacked it took quite some time for people to eventually realize in the process that took place which is one of stereotype the person criminalize the person um and stigmatize the person in order to justify their death and that happens in each and every case of a black person dying in police custody, and the, the attempts we saw in black and white in, in terms of the United States, what they tried to do with George Floyd. Then there's always the talk of superhuman strength, if somebody has mental health issues, if somebody has taken drugs. So, in in the first sort of days, in the first weeks, you know, in the first 32 days, police officers involved did not give any statements. But meanwhile, the federation and their lawyers were handing out statements. You know, they they were painting a picture in the public domain. The family, when they went to Edinburgh some 15 days after the death of Sheku Bayo, and it was front-page newspapers, it had been on the TV, and they had their first press conference They were going to meet the Lord Advocate. The family didn't speculate. They said they didn't want to speculate. All they said was that the police, if the Sheku was breaking the law, the police had a right to use reasonable, legitimate, proportionate force, but they also know that he had a right to life. And almost instantly, in immediately after that event, I think about one minute as the press conference closed, a journalist came to me and said, have you seen this release from the Federation? And it was a full frontal attack. And it built a picture. And the picture that was built, which today has resonated with so many people, because when they stigmatize and they criminalize, what they're doing is justifying someone's death. So what you have is half the people walk away and think, well, he deserved to die. He was using the weapon. Well, first, these are the facts that we now know. Shekubayo, when the police arrived, did not have a knife. Shikubayo, when the police arrived was walking with palms out Shikubayo, when the police arrived did not attack the first two police officers did not attack the first four police officers on the ride in fact he was hit with cs spray pava spray he was hit with a baton and it was on the fourth occasion that there's supposed to have been um some sort of skirmish that took place or a police officer fell over and that was it But within something like less than a minute of four police officers arriving, Shikubayo was face down on the ground. He was ankle cuffed. He was leg restraints and handcuffs were applied to him. And they were on top of him. Up to six police officers were on top of him for four minutes, at least four minutes. And he lost his life. He could not breathe. Now, when you compare and contrast that to George Floyd, as, as Caddy Johnson said, in the case of George Floyd, it was only one police officer on top of him. In the case of Sheku, it was up to six police officers. So, of course, there is anger, there is disappointment that in this country, that when we went, when people marched, when people raised the placards, "Black Lives Matter," when they carried the banners, when they put the you know the, the image and the pictures of George Floyd in their windows, and we walked past and they go, "What about Sheku?" Pammy said, "Is he not a worthy victim? Did he not have the right to life?" So yes, it's a bittersweet moment.
0: Emma, do you think if I mean Sheku died in Kirkcaldy, right? Yes. If that had happened anywhere else out with Scotland, do you think our politicians would have been protesting?
3: Yes. Absolutely. So why uh, didn't that happen here? They lack the courage. I think they lack courage. They lack commitment. And even if you view it on first of all, if you let's take it down for the parties, if it's party commitment, first off is If it's the SNP, the party of government, then they will look to their heads to see how they respond. I say with respect, Nicola Sturgeon, First Minister, met with the family within the first year. Hamza Youssef ordered the first inquiry into race in policing ever in Scotland. So he did that. He delivered that. But I was very conscious of the fact that when we were looking to, for instance, SNP, MSPs to come behind it, there was abject silence. But nobody else escapes criticism. There was a handful of individuals from the Labour Party, you know, um, that, that spoke up, there was, I can't remember anybody from the Liberal Democrats speaking up initially, I couldn't remember anybody from the Conservatives speaking up, I think there was a handful from the Greens that spoke up. So there was that almost like silence, um, in, in terms of a response, in terms of support, um, which wasn't forthcoming. And that to a certain extent is the propaganda that comes out, first of all, from the police. You know the damage limitation that they do and it takes so much time to explain to people but there was I, I see it as cowardice the failure to speak up because how can you speak up about George Floyd but not speak up about Sheku Bayo not speak up about the other people that are dying in police custody not speak up about the many people that have died in police custody in England and Wales uh, it, it's rank hypocrisy to call out the name of Sheku and not to also call out the name of Sheku uh, to call out the name of George Floyd but not to call out the name of Sheku and um, and, and it has been a difficult process because we have been to parliament it's not that when people said to me involved with black lives matter but, but we never knew about this and i said how could you not we've been through the trade union movement we have been you know we have a unanimous motions passed at the trade union movement um we have uh you know we we've had the first minister meet with the family you know we have a public inquiry and i also think that now it's almost like because a public inquiry is happening, everybody used that as a convenient excuse to say, shut down the debate, don't talk about it, there's a public inquiry happening. And what I would say to people out there was, the public inquiry, yes, it has started. It hasn't started taking evidence. It hasn't even begun to distribute the documents, the hundreds of thousands of pages of documents to all the parties concerned. And it will. it is likely to be the end of this year or the beginning of next year, which means it will be six and a half years and probably 10 years after the death of Shikubayo before it reports. And the question I will always ask anyone is that if you have a child, if it was your loved one that lost their their lives at the hands of the police, would you not want to see a trial take place in court if you thought the evidence was overwhelming rather than an inquiry? Because as I said to Imran Khan, that was also a bittersweet moment for the Lawrence family. When the Stephen Lawrence inquiry happened. Why? Because whilst the rest of the world was celebrating, what people seemed to forgot was that a mother and father didn't actually see justice. And again, it took the family of Stephen Lawrence's eighteen years before they got justice. Like in the case of Sergei Singh Choker, it took us eighteen years to get justice. And at the end of the day, families, you know, the inquiries, the reviews, the, the you know, the merry go round of reviews and individuals appointed and everybody doing all right out of it doesn't really mean much to a family until they see satisfaction that real justice has been done.
0: Do you feel that at the heart of all of this is, particularly with Sheku in Scotland, that there's a belief that we're not racist, we don't have this problem here, therefore we can't acknowledge these things?
3: I I think there is. I came to Glasgow in 1986 and I, I never really understood the term when people used to say to me, I came up from Liverpool, where we were used to, you know, I grew grew up a mile away from Talkstuff, and we were used to the stories of black men dying in the back of police vans and dying on the street. We had the Talkstuff riots, the uprising of uh, predominantly Afro-Caribbean young males against a racist police force that acted more like an occupying force. I came to Glasgow, uh, and and I was quite shocked when I first arrived in Glasgow because, to me, it seemed like a segregated city. And the only community people of colour that predominantly saw was the Pakistani community. And people would say to me, we don't have racism. We've got sectarianism, but we don't have racism. um, We're all Jock Thompson's burns. And I didn't really understand what that meant until years went by. And it frustrated me as I became political, became involved in student politics and started to fight racism, how, for instance, people seemed to find within the trade union movement easier to fight apartheid several thousand miles away in South Africa. But when it came to racism on their own streets, within their own communities, with their own schools, with their own institutions... They didn't see it as a problem. And then it became a problem. Again, I said to Imran Khan on Stephen Lawrence Day that when the the Lawrence inquiry came out, I remember going down to Liverpool and watching Jack Straw standing on his feet. And I was despondent at the time because whilst people were celebrating England and Wales, I was despondent as an anti-racist campaigner in Scotland because people were saying, the police were saying, the institutions were saying, we don't have the same problems. And the reason they were saying we don't have the same problem was because we don't have black people. We've got only got a small, as though it's like, you know, having a large community makes it a problem. Um, so I was despondent at the time thinking, what, you know, what does it take? And, and bizarrely enough, two weeks after the Stephen Lawrence inquiry came out, the the, the first trial of the Choker case collapsed, collapsed and the racist killer walked free. And then there was, you know, then we galvanized probably the biggest anti-racist movement we have ever seen in the history of this country um, where we, Neville and Doreen Lawrence backed it, the press were crammed in, we were sitting in the headquarters of the SDUC, the whole trade union movement united like a force to, to, to back the, the Choker family and to drive for a second trial. And then there was inquiries which we ultimately boycotted and walked away, but ultimately it took 18 years to get that. We, and we haven't, you know, I, I, today I think it's a case of, there's almost like this mythical thing, oh, well, we're, we're fine, it's, it's problem is in England. So we like to talk about the abuse of human rights by the Tories in England. We like to talk about, you know, their abuse of asylum seekers. We like to talk about Pretty Patel, but I say, well, why don't we have a look at what's happening on our own doorstep? We have the scar on this nation is Dungable. It still hasn't been ripped down. We see black people, asylum seekers attacked. You know, it just, you know, it, it you know, we had. Um, I think it was the the Daily Record that had it. You know, a few several months ago, um, where you talked, where it talked about the the diatribe that Hamza Yusuf, that Anas Sauer and myself as the three so-called most prominent Asians in Scotland face on an hourly on a daily basis where we look at our phone um, you can't have a private moment it's just constant race hate and attack and people think it's a free-for-all um, and I go well that's just a tip of the iceberg because many people in the community do almost feel as though the clock is being turned back. And I want to see more. I want to see much more. I want to see more from the, the, the party that's in, in government. Um, I don't want to see tokenistic responses. I don't really care if you've you've put up B B A M E candidates because the reality is not candidates, but how many have we got in parliament? It's an abject disgrace that we only have two people of color, two males, um, two Asians in the Scottish parliament. So what does it mean? Because to me, what it means is, that in 2000 when I stood outside the steps of the High Court in Glasgow came out of the, the second trial of the Choker case, and I stood on the steps and said, we have two systems of justice at work in this country, one for the rich and a very different one for black people and the poor. And I said at the time that the Crown Office operated like a gentleman's colonial club, relatively unchanged for 400 years. I said we had no black, senior black police officers. We had no black High Court judges. We had no black senior prosecutors. And and that to me symbolised in deep rooted institutional racism. Well, let's look at it this way. Just yesterday, I put up a tweet, which which the Times had run an article where it said that I think eight High Court judges had come out in England and Wales and said that there was endemic racism. That you know that they were making sure that black and people of colour were not able to get into. And I said, why are we so surprised in Scotland? We have zero black judges high court judges zero black people of color as judges we have two out of 142 sheriffs who happen to be asian and we have zero people of color above the rank of i think chief superintendent um in scotland we have a problem with the recruitment of um, um, black or Asian or people of color police officers. And we have misogyny, we have deep-rooted racism within um, the police service, as recently exposed by Ailish Angelini's report. And so when I look, we have these reports. The concern I have is Ailish Angelini, former Lord Advocate, very prominent, well-respected Lord Advocate, um, who was asked actually by all people of Theresa May to do an inquiry into deaths in custody in England and Wales. And she delivered a damning indictment of the of the racism that existed in the criminal justice system in england um, and of why you know black people more p- black people are twice as likely to die in police custody as, as as a white people and yet that report was shelved for some three years uh, coming on to four years well we had ailish's report into scotland and it delivered again a damning indictment and the response very muted um almost knocked into the long grass yes i've seen manifesto committ- commitments to implement it but Um, I I don't really think we should believe in it to please Scotland to implement it and decide what happens or to a gravy train of so-called inspectors to do it. You know, we need more than that because institutional racism means that it will just carry on as normal.
0: So, of course, we had the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities concluding that there was no institutional racism in the UK. I mean, do you think that applies to
3: Scotland? No, I, I, I don't think it applies to Scotland, but I see it very much as an attack um, which is UK-wide, because that report delivered on the, uh, uh, for the UK. And you can see that the UK government will use such a report to fight back, um, to fight back on any gains, um, to fight back on, you know, uh, on any struggles that are taking place, to dismiss. And I see it almost, uh, I see it as like when, when I was growing up during the 70s and in the 80s, and when I became involved in race pol- anti-racist politics, we as a community used to use the term black as all-encompassing. You know, for instance, some people sometimes are confused and say, you know, as a black person, and people say, but you're not black, you're Asian. I said, no, no. I said, you lot are the ones who divided us, because when we used to be attacked on the street, when we used to give, we when we were abused in the street, when there used to be graffiti and all that, you know, it was the B word, the the black B that, that would be used against us, and it combined us and united us. And then we were split up along multicultural lines, then it was split along. Pakistani, Bangladeshi, Indian, afro Caribbean, African, you know, uh, and then it became equal opportunities. And now the Sewell report is very much trying to, you know, I don't like the term "bame," but it's a term. And the point being that they want to even abolish that, and it won't be long before they want to abolish the term racism. Uh, so, so I think it's 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 a dangerous. It is a very dangerous report. What I was heartened by was almost the instantaneous backlash that took place um from institutions from um campaigners from right across the board you even had the national black police association that condemned it of course we didn't have the scottish police federation said nothing about it but what i was very conscious of was because i put out on twitter at the time calling on all political leaders in scotland to call out the sewell report i put out a tweet saying that those who stand as bame candidates stand you know they 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 stand on the shoulder of giants they only got there because of the blood sweat and tears of our families who've given so much to this country and they had a responsibility to call out and it was like getting blood out of a stone you know it's almost dragging their feet and i was really angry and upset as were other people in our community who are also contacting the just saying where is your response Why are you waiting? Why do you need the green light from your party leaders before you actually issue responses? So it's almost terrorist. What's the point of becoming an ethnic minority representative if you don't have the guts to call out the biggest attack on anti-racism we've seen in generations? that you're waiting before you deliver a response and then taking several days or a week. And then some people saying, oh, well, we needed to read the two, you know, we needed to read the report before we decided, said you have some of the most prominent people in this country, the most respected people calling it out for what it was. You had, you know, um, Doreen Lawrence instantaneously saying, calling it what it is. You had um, David Lammy, you had various other people. You know, many of us were so hurt and angry at what it had said i mean it glorified slavery you know it told the afro-caribbean community to be, to look at the benefits of what you know the empire brought back and the asian community and i thought what more do you need even if you take those couple of lines from it it's enough to tell you of what the the thesis was of what the conclusion was or what the intentions were of this report and in fact you didn't have to you know many people in my community use the term uncle tom's Because when the the inquiry panel was appointed, we said, well, these are the people who've denied the existence of racism. And just because they've done very well for themselves, it's almost like forget about everybody else.
0: I was listening to the podcast interview you did with Imran Khan uh, last night, and there was a thing that really struck me, that 28 years on, and I guess that's the thing, it, it is 28 years on from Stephen Lawrence's death, and there's lots of young people involved in BLM and all these other campaigns that won't remember the tipping point that that was but but what you said to Imran was you've got a 14 year old son yeah. and every time he goes out the door
3: you worry about him yeah so what's um, changed um i mean that is that is i mean people when people ask me why do you carry on i very much know because i have my three children you know my son's th- 13 sorry and and it's a case of uh, just in case he's listening and directs me as he's probably quite happy being 14 (laughs) um but yeah I mean my heart you know thumps you know it's it's like beating faster now when he goes out because I give him all the advice when he goes out the door I tell him like what to avoid I tell him you know to, to stay away from groups um somebody says anything racist to him I'm concerned about a police officer's approach and what he should say how he should react and it horrifies me that that all these years later that i should have to give that advice to my son because of the concern about racism and that i that i can't sit still because i'm very conscious of the possibilities god forbid of what could happen out there and that that is heartbreaking because i genuinely know when people say why do you keep going i said i said i do not I want things to change. I want things to change for my children. I want things to change for my children's children. I do not want them to have to, you know, I don't see any family should have to grieve the way that the Lawrences did. I don't want any family to have to grieve the way the Choker family did, any family to grieve the way the Sheku family did or the George Floyd family did, um, to have to start a campaign, you know, in the midst of their grief just to get justice. Um, and And quite honestly, whether it's people like Imran Khan or whether it's people like me, I'd say this 28 years on from Stephen's death, you know, Sajit Sinchoka died in nineteen ninety-eight. Um Sheku died in two thousand and fifteen. Um, you know, the list is the the list is endless. But what I would say is in over 30 years of campaigning, I I'd probably say this that people like me and others are tired of grieving at gravesides, um, commemorating the you know, those whose lives have been lost from our community. We want to be in a position where we're actually celebrating the lives of the living, not to be commemorating them once they are dead. You know, Stephen Lawrence had a life. That young man should have been an architect today, should have been, I think, 48 years old. You know, he was a high-flying student. You know, Sergei Sengchoka should have seen his daughter getting married. He missed her marriage. You know, know, he, he should have seen, you know, his grandchildren. You know, his his parents, uh, Mr. Choker said to me that he should, his his son should have carried, you know, him, um, you know, on, on the funeral day. Instead, I carried Mr. Choker's coffin, you know, and I read the eulogy to to, to Darshan Singh Choker, the father of Sergi Singh. And so we're tired and and it is tiring. It is so, so tiring. I said the other day after I was getting horrific abuse over the course of a week where it was like, Minute by minute, daily by hour by hour, it's slowed down now. But as a result of my representing Glenn Kamara, um, the, Rangers the Rangers player, mm. uh-huh. and um, the abuse that I got from predominantly, I think, it was Slavia Prague, France, in the Czech Republic. And it was horrendous. It's some of, probably, I, I would say, it's some of the worst abuse I've seen um, in recent years, you know, personally attacking me, my family, and all that. And I, I used the words, and I was, somebody asked me, how, did you, how, did it, how do you feel? And I said, it feels like somebody is punching you in the face again and again and again, shouting and screaming abuse at you again and again and again, and there's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do about it. Because it's social media, you can't switch it off because you go from one device to another and it's there. You go from one platform to another, it keeps going, it keeps going, it keeps going. But this almost feels like a slow motion being punched in the face because every time you hear about the death in custody, every time you hear about a racist murder, it feels it's those emotions come back again. I mean, I still to this day, when I speak about the Choker case, cry. You know, tears well up, my voice starts to croak because... That pain, that grief that that family felt, fair enough, it's not the same, but I went through that process and I fought tooth and nail along with so many people from the community, so many trade unions who fought, gave their heart and soul alongside that family. I watched a family grieve, but in the midst of their grief, having to set up a campaign. And I was in, meet- where we walked, we walked and we marched and we did hundreds of meetings up and down this country. And I at times felt like, they had no, they cried and they cried until eventually they had no more tears to give. And when you see somebody's hope extinguished, as I did so many years ago with the Choker case, and then Imran Khan picked up the phone to me one day, you know, because the, the chronology was 1998 murder, 1999 first trial, killer walks free, Ronnie Coulter, second trial, 2000, 2001, two whitewash inquiries orders, which the family boycott, Mr. Choker develops cancer. And then, you know, many years later, Imran picks up the phone and says, Amr, you need to push for the Scottish government to introduce a double jeopardy, which would allow a person to be brought back to trial if there's new evidence. And I went back. I think the SNP were the minority administration at the time and approached them. They said that they would introduce the legislation. I then went and saw what I saw as a change in regime, the Crown Office. It was Frank Mulholland was the Lord Advocate, Leslie Thompson was Solicitor General, you know, I saw a change in attitude from where, where the, what had gone before, many years before, and there was a determination. We all worked as a team. We wanted to see justice, and we, and we got that justice. Um, but it's when you see that, you know, when you over those years, you see hope being extinguished, and you see pain, and you can't see a smile. You know, I see Mrs. Choker now, and I see the smile on her face, and it fills me full of hope because she can enjoy her grandchildren. She can smile, and when she held my hand, and when that verdict came through in the high court, and Ronnie Coulter nearly 18 years later, after walking free from his first trial, was convicted and sent to prison for life. We we held each other's hands, myself, Mrs. Choker, Manji, the sister, and we cried. And we cried because Mrs. Choker said to me, says, now I can be at peace. My husband and my son can be at peace and I can get on with my life. And now when I see her laugh and I see her smile, it means a great deal. But no mother should be placed in that position. No family should be placed in that position because there are so many families who are still suffering in the way that, you know, um, George Floyd's family at least have have seen justice take place.
0: Which takes me back to Sheku's case, really. I mean, so there is now going to be this public inquiry. Do you think that will help the family feel the same peace that you say Shoka's family feel?
3: I I don't think it will bring peace, no, Um, because... It's almost like Neville and Dorian Lawrence. They didn't ultimately feel peace until they saw real justice in the courtroom. I think it will, to a certain extent, the family want to see a legacy. They want to see change take place. They want to see the truth emerge. Um, and there is hope that that's, that will happen. Um, and it's always important to families when they lose loved ones to see a legacy because it's almost like you want a living legacy. Because then you can see, you know, the way I view it is the name of Ronnie Coulter will turn to dust. The man who stabbed and killed Sheikh Ubayo, uh, sorry, killed Sergei Singh Chalka in a racist attack. The killers of Stephen Lawrence will turn to dust, but the names of Stephen Lawrence, Sergit Singh Chalka, will live on. The name of George Floyd will live on. And for the family of Sheikh Ubayo, what they want firstly is the truth. They know they'll never get justice. So whilst everybody out there says, oh, be satisfied, shut up and be quiet, you've got a public inquiry, what they should remember is this, and I always throw it by and say, if it was your son or daughter, what would you want to see happen? And I say this, that at the end of the day, all they asked for was the police to act reasonably, legitimately, proportionately. What we know is that Shikubayo, when the police arrived, did not have a weapon. That Shekubayo was the first one that was attacked with CS spray, pepper spray, and then batons. That Shakubayo was down on the ground, and the question that the family have always asked is, why, when you have him handcuffed, ankle cuffed, leg restraints, does it require multiple officers on top of him? You know, he lost his life. And at the end of the day, I've always said this, that imagine if it was several bouncers at a nightclub and a, a member of the public was restrained and he died in their custody there's no way that those seven bouncers would be given the courtesy of 32 days before they had to give a statement their doors would be kicked in they would be dragged out of their beds they would be taken to a police station they certainly wouldn't be sat in the same room together for several hours to compare notes and to discuss a story before they came out with it and then they would be put a trial within weeks if not months they would be put on trial, and then the justice system would decide whether they were guilty or not. Yet it seems to me that within this country, within the United Kingdom and within Scotland, if you put on if you put a uniform on, then you are unaccountable before the law, and that is simply unacceptable you must you must you know if you wear a uniform and you take an oath and you carry weapons, and you are given a responsibility it's policing by consent, and you should answer to the courts. It shouldn't be by the means of inquests in England and Wales. It shouldn't be by the means of FAIs. You should face the same justice that ordinary members of the public expect to face if someone dies at their hands.
0: Amar, did Sheku die because he was black?
3: His family believed that race had a role to play. His family ultimately believed that if had he been white and the police had received reports of a white man walking down the street carrying a knife, then there wouldn't have been that disproportionate response from the police service. And in fact, we have cases of where police officers have been slashed and stabbed, and police officers have attended, and the individuals have been, you know, and they've been, and they've actually been carrying the knife in their hand. You know, they've, they've, they've slashed, you've know, attacked police officers, and those individuals have been taken safely into custody. Um, yet in the case of Shikubayo, the first instantaneous thought of a police officer attending is, is this a terrorist attack? So the first question you ask yourself is, it's Kakodi? It's half past seven in the morning. Seriously, are you expecting us to believe that you think you're under a terrorist attack? And if you think you're under a terrorist attack, then you stand back and you wait for full support from the police service. You wait for the armed response unit. You don't go in gung-ho yourself. Then the, the, the amount of force that is used upon the individual, and then the stereotyping that follows after the death. What we saw was big black man. Machete carrying. He came from he came from Sierra Leone. There was attempts to talk about him. You know there was almost this insinuation that he came from a war torn, violent country. He came to this country when he was eleven years old. No. Um, that he was carrying machete. No, he wasn't when the police arrived. He was carrying no weapon was found on him. He never brandished a weapon. You know, so that imagery that is deployed of superhuman strength, drug, you know, zombie drug, taking zombie-type drug. So this imagery is built up of a mad, crazed, superhuman strength, overpowering black man, when actually, when we looked at it, we went, hang on a second, Shekubayo was 12 stones and 10 pounds. He was five foot 10 inches. The first two officers who attended the scene, who restrained him, was six foot four and weighed anywhere between 20 and 25 stones. Now, add that up when you've got six officers. So he wasn't the biggest, he wasn't the smallest, but he was certainly not the biggest, but he was somewhere in between. But you had six officers all. So that whole imagery, you know, for the, for the family and for many others in the community, smacks of racism because there was, it was deployed. Uh, in a way that is deployed in... I mean, I predicted this is what they would do. Said to the family, they will throw in the drugs. They will throw in superhuman strength. They will throw in, you know, he's mad and crazy and excited delirium that he excited himself to death rather than anything to do with being restrained by the police. Because why? They do that every time a black person dies in police custody. They've done it everywhere. They've done it in all the cases in England. They did it with George Floyd. And as as, as the prosecutor in the George Floyd case said... There's no such thing as superhuman strength. We're humans. You know, there's never, in 15,000 autopsies, the person who carried out autopsy, the 15,000 autopsies said that they never had a case of somebody being handcuffed, restrained, ever got up after they've stopped breathing, getting up and running away. In the case of Sheku, he'd stopped breathing. And when he went to hospital, he was still cuffed and he'd have to have his cuffs removed. And that, for his family, that represented the shackles that were applied to black men and how they're treated even in their death.
0: So I guess I go back again, you know, to the George Floyd um, death and the reaction from politicians here in Scotland. I still don't understand why you haven't had a campaign behind you, why you haven't had politi- local politicians looking at this and saying it's an outrage. Is it well, to easier fair, to look tweets? at
3: other countries? I, th- I think it's much easier to look at other countries and look at your own. And I think w- when something like this happens, to be fair, Claire Baker, the local MSP, did back, has backed the family. Um, and you know, people will say, "Well, Hamza Yusuf, the justice minister supported the family by calling a public inquiry." But what I say is, "Well, actually, no. The family fought for a public inquiry. We fought to get justice. I think it's easier looking overseas. It's much harder here because local politicians will be working with the local police. Um, it's it's much easier in this country to call out. You know, I, I, I've said it. I said it just recently with this when the elections coming on." I said, when it comes to the justice system, and I have reminded our Cabinet Secretary for Justice, who happened to be friends with, and I've said to him, I said, justice isn't just about um, prosecution, isn't just about, you know, uh, victims, um, isn't just about, you know, increasing conviction rates. It's also about somebody who's accused, you know, about their rights. So in the case of Sheku Bayu, if you can reduce a person to just a, what, you know, a machete-waving drug-fueled madman then you negate his right to life you you be, you create a criminal which makes it much easier then for the system to ensure that a campaign doesn't operate because let's look at Stephen lawrence when the police initially wanted to make it part as a gang attack or you know try to insinuate it was very hard for them to do that with Stephen because Stephen was seen as a worthy victim he had the right to life he was a straight a gay student you know, and his family were well-to-do working-class people with no criminal connections. So it meant that when a campaign was fought, a campaign was fought, and people came alongside. In the case of Shakibayo, I have compared and contrasted Sirjit Singh Choker, the campaign that we fought, which was massive, to the campaign around Shakibayo. The right to life was negated very quickly, very early on, with the lies that were told by the police and and then certain sections of of the media. Uh, so so that that has been a problem and i, I don't i don't shy, shy away from it but at the end of the day politicians should have the courage of their convictions i think it's a lack of courage and it it stinks of rank hypocrisy each and every time i see any politicians stand up and scream george floyd or talk about stephen lawrence i name check and i roll through and i go what did you say about shikibayo nothing by and large absolutely nothing No tweets, nothing to say until it's officially pronounced that there's an inquiry, then people will say it. It's in the manifesto. My God, it's in the manifesto. But I'm yet to hear politicians across the political ranks speak up in unison and say, we demand justice. And it's almost like they're terrified of getting involved in that. They don't want to rubbish the name of the police. It's not about rubbishing the name of police. I know many good police officers. I'm, 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 bizarrely enough, I know the Scottish Police Federation won't accept this, but I'm also good friends with a number of police officers who think you know that this does, this does disservice to the police service of Scotland, you know for people trying to do a job um, that if this is allowed to carry on.
0: Do you think it makes any difference then, given that there might be a collective silence, if you like, waiting for leaders to say something politically, Mm -hmm. that we have BAME candidates? Because what's the point in just having a person of colour in the parliament if they don't actually speak up for their communities?
3: Well, I I, I, I probably, I mean, I, I think it's important to have BAME candidates because the way I view it is that we had institutional misogyny for so many years. And it actually took determination from party to say 50-50 to actually to get rid of that. Because for, for all the years you could have, you could say, oh, we need diversity, we need more women, more women. It wasn't going to happen because the men were never going to step aside. So you needed to have a system that said, we implement women. And I think that's, that's shown, it's already shown now in terms of the judiciary, in terms of the police, in terms of public institutions. You know, uh, and we've seen from the Scottish government talking about you know public bodies having 50-50 women. Well, the reality is that nobody's going to step aside for the BAME candidates. And then people say, on the basis of merit. Well, they used to say that about women. Oh, if they've got merit, then they'll succeed. And well, absolute utter nonsense, because the sexism, misogyny, patriarchy. It was still, It was institutional, and the institutional racism still exists. So we need the BAME candidates. My concern is this. There is no point in BAME candidates, as I've said, standing on the shoulders of giants, you know getting there because of the blood sweat and tears and the sacrifices made by our parents to simply shut up and to be complicit in the silence i want and no disrespect i don't want to see uncle toms in parliaments in scotland or in england and wales what i want to see people uh, people who will fight for our community there is no point in screaming from the rooftops about racism when several years later when a report is re- is is comes about and concludes that there's racism. But over the course of several years you have done nothing to support the families that are screaming and fighting for justice and fighting for equality. So I i think there is a problem that I think all parties are guilty of this, but they sort of almost use this sort of, oh we've got a BAME candidate. Whoopie do. They're not in, they've not got a seat yet. That's the first thing to remember. You haven't put them first past the post. You've got them on your regional list. So and you know, so 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 what? You know, let us let's, let's see if you were actually had the guts to put them in first past the post and say stand aside. Uh, so so that's that's the second issue that I think that parties need to. To, to review but i also think that all parties still have a problem with institutional racism they haven't rooted it out i mean come on i mean there's cases that have been going rumbling on for a couple of years and you know there's i think there's still a case to do with um within a couple of places within the labor parties cases within the smp they haven't been resolved why does it take a few years to decide what you're going to do with it and so it's almost like the system operates like shikubayo and other cases drag it on for several years so people give up they lose heart, they walk away, they've had enough. Uh, And my concern from when I talk to people internally within the Labour Party and the SNP mostly is that those who have experienced racism just get get fed up and they walk away from it. And, and, And I am tired of having to call out whether it be white or BAME people within parties to say, speak up, develop, where is your voice why do you? Why are you such cowards in terms of you know calling it out when you see it? Uh, because it shouldn't be left to families and victims to stand up and fight for this. Because they're tired, they're trying to grieve. They, you know, that, that's you know. And when you expand it, this isn't just about deaths and custodies. This isn't just about racist murders. It, you know, perpetuates in institutions, in jobs, in the education system. You know, in our communities, is the daily the daily grind, the corrosive impact of racism. But I, and all these people should be thinking. It's the same way that I think. I do not want my children to grow up having to experience what I had to experience.
0: Do you get tired? I mean, do you? Is there a point, Emma, where you just think, "Oh, do you know what? I'm fed up fighting."
3: Yeah, I do. Um, I felt I felt that last week or a couple of weeks ago when that, that diatribe of abuse—it was horrendous. I was trying to enjoy my time with my children. I had a week off. Um and and I couldn't because every time I switched my phone, every time I looked at my laptop, I switched the computer on, I looked at the office emails, it was just constant bombardment, bombardment, bombardment. And it was tiring because I mean my mom said to me, and she says, Son, why don't you just walk away, just leave it? And she said, Come home. And home to her is Liverpool. I said, Mom, this is my home. You know, Glasgow's my home now. I've been here for over thirty-three. Thirty-three, thirty-four 34 years. And I said, I said, I can't just walk away now. I And there was a part of me just felt like it, it does become overwhelming and become tiring because you sometimes do look around and there's a handful of people I rely upon. I mean, it feels like that sometimes a handful of people that I rely upon when we have to fight back, when we have to shout from the rooftops, when we have to galvanize and form a campaign. And that does become tiring. Um, but then... Then you go, well, I suppose it gets to the family. Well, if you give up, I, I I just, I just can't give up. I mean, I have to just keep going. And and I think when me and Imran were talking about it, it was like, how do we keep going? It's the people that I meet, the families that I meet, the Choker family, the Bio family, the individuals that I've met over the years that continue to inspire me. And I think if they can keep going in the midst of their grief, in the midst of their pain and their anguish, um, then what what's been asked of me and i'll say this i never really understood and imran said this the other day he didn't understand dorian's grief um until he had his own child and then i never understood my mom always used to say to me when i was growing up she said when i used to give her aggro when i was a teenager and when i came to scotland and studying and and she'd say to me and i used to moan out and say oh mom stop bugging me you know want me to phone her every night and say you'll understand when you have your own children son and you'll understand when you see them go for pain and, and God forbid anything happens to my children. But I know, for instance, when my children have been in hospital and you want as a parent to take away their pain, you you stay awake for the night checking their temperature and, you know, and, you, and you're in hospital when you're thinking and you, you're crying and you you want to be in their place to take their place imagine that feeling that knowing feeling of anguish every single day every minute from the moment you go to sleep from the moment you wake up that feeling of knowing you have lost your child to hate that it wasn't natural and to have that and that's that's unbearable and to see people like that have the courage you know shiku's mother shiku's partner his sister you know to carry on going and going saying we are not giving up we will not give up. We will not walk away. We will keep fighting. And you go well. I'm not being asked for very much, to be honest. I'm not being asked for very much at all.
0: Emma, when you describe, you know, your concerns about your your son going out, um, why is that different from my concerns as a white woman and my white son going out and being concerned that he'll be safe?
3: Because, because I I don't I think you have the similar concerns. But I think the concerns are expanded because when my son goes out, it's not just about the concern about he goes out. It's a concern about when he goes to school. Is he facing racism? Why does he get picked for the team? What's the education system like to him? How he's dealt with when he goes into shop? what what life chances is he going to get when he goes to university? Is he going to get a job? Is he going to be? Is he going to? Is he going to lose out because of the color of his skin? So it's it's a combined approach. So it's not my concerns are not just as a father. not just simply about him going out my heart you know as I said I worry about that um but it's it's everything it culminates into that so it's that's just one example of what I feel um I I, and worry about about them growing up because 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 as I say it's like I mean I've been a lawyer now for some 21 years when I lecture to law students and especially to, to black Asian minority ethnic law students it, t- it saddens me that I have to say to them, you will have to work 10 to 20 times harder. And even when you think you have succeeded, there will always be that one person that pulls you when you think you're at the top, at the pinnacle, will drag you right down to the gutter with them. And you will spend your life looking over your shoulder at those institutions who want to give you a kicking who think you've got too big for your boots. And, and if I'm being honest, that's how I feel t- to this day. I spend my life looking over my shoulder at the institution thinking that if they can give me a kicking, if they can drag me down, if they can kick me out, they will try their damnedest best to do so because I'm seen as, as the police said to me when they smashed my teeth out, the black boy with a big mouth. Uh, and, and for me, that that's, you know, when I look at my son, it's gay, so I don't want this for them. I really don't. I want my children, my son, my two daughters to grow up, to be valued on the basis of the people that they are, the content of their character, not the color of their skin, not to be judged, not to when they walk in a room as I do still to this day, that I will know. And, it's, and I parallel I always use is when people talk about walking into a room, an institution or a party somewhere, or, you know, where's social function of how people treat you. And I say, listen, as a child, we grow up knowing whether somebody likes you or doesn't like you because of their color of skin or if you're treated in a different way. And it's no different to young women. You know, when you walk into a room, knowing how somebody is assessing you, judging you, dealing with you, talking to you, and that is the same way for those who are people of color, and we feel that, and I don't want my children to have to feel that, but I also don't want their dreams to be shattered one day, because I brought them up to think, you can succeed, for them to think, actually, I didn't, because of the color of my skin, that's wrong. As someone
0: much greater than I said, a week is a very long time in politics. And believe me, I know Scottish politics is never boring. So don't leave it long. Make sure you come back and join us on Politically Speaking. And remember that you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And do tell your friends because everybody has an interest in politics.